1: on local now channel 525 time now for the church of the week showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater san francisco bay area
2: well on today's program a special guest in fact for some of you even a familiar voice as we're visiting today with the senior pastor of trinity bible church of morgan hill and pleased to have join our conversation pastor manny Pereira. pastor manny welcome good to have you with us
0: It's great to be here. Thank you, Craig.
2: We are looking forward to uh, getting a chance to kind of uh, peel back some of the layers of the onion, so to speak, and uh, share with our listeners a bit of first what God is doing at Trinity Bible Church, and then a bit of not just your heartbeat, but also what God has been doing in uh, your walk. Walk Mm. us through. Um, I understand you were raised in a mainline denominational church, high on ceremony and tradition, but clearly there must have been something going on in your life that said to you... As a young man, you really hungered for more. There was a desire for that sense of not just religion, but relationship. Walk us through that and what God did.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity, Greg. Obviously, I I, I share this with with a delight in uh, the gospel of Christ and just to encourage everyone to hear how He moves in lives. Yes, I, I was I was involved. I was an altar boy and involved very heavily in the church, um, high church and very structured. There was a crisis that took place when I was in my junior year, the summer of my junior year of high school, a crisis in my family, which led us, by God's providence, um, to uh, another church, a Protestant church that was preaching the gospel, and uh, we were there for only three months, and in that three-month time, as I was sitting there week after week, uh, I heard uh, the gospel preached, I heard uh, the gospel explained, I heard the explanation of the substitution of Jesus Christ how his death on the cross was a substitutionary death that it was a death in the place of sinners and that it was God truly God truly man therefore sufficient to take away sin and yet capable of bearing the punishment and dying in the place of the sinner and and when i heard the gospel Explained clearly from the scriptures in that way, suddenly all the images that I had for years learned and become familiar with, all those images suddenly came together like a puzzle piece. And it presented a brilliant masterpiece before me. I I saw something glorious and beautiful. And for the first time, I realized, wow, this is what the gospel is about. This is what Christ on the cross is about. This is amazing. And there was, you know, John Bunyan, the old Puritan, wrote a story called Pilgrim's Progress. And there's a wonderful illustration he has. Uh The character, the main character, his name is Christian, fittingly. And he carries this load on his back. And when he comes to the cross, when he comes to realize the gospel of substitution, and as he embraced it by faith, as he saw the glory of it, and he responded by faith, truly believing, uh, uh, trusting that it's true, but embracing it, it was at that time that Bunyan describes that load on his back was just released. And and I can tell you, Greg, that's what happened when I was 17 years old in this church that I wasn't familiar with. I heard the gospel, the puzzle pieces came together, and I saw how the gospel promises me forgiveness. My sin is punished on Christ. And now by faith, I render myself to him and receive him as my Lord and Savior. And in that moment, there was a tremendous relief, and there was a tremendous joy and there were tears, but I, I tell you that that was something that, that revolutionized, changed my entire worldview. I, I just to sum up then what happened after that, that's still quite a story and quite a journey. I, I received a, a Bible and I read the thing cover to cover several times over and over. I read it so much that the thing fell apart three times and I had to repair it. I didn't have the money to buy a new one and I didn't want to because I knew where things were in this particular Bible. And so I repaired the thing with cereal boxes and duct tape, you know, several times over. It was. So, the point is, I read the scriptures and i and I began I was so hungry to know this gracious god and um we went back to the church that we were attending, and I you know continued along the way until there was an encounter there that um I was confronted with uh with the challenge that they said, I was quoting too much of the Bible and I should be quoting other documents. And uh, there was this situation where they said, I couldn't interpret the scripture. I need the magisterium in Rome to do that. And there were things of this nature that really caused me to examine the teaching of the church. And that really drove me, and I'll, I'll end here, Craig, that, that drove me to uh, to study history and to learn more about the Reformation. And since we're in the month of October, I thought it would be fitting to even just encourage our listeners to understand what happened in 1517, October 31st. And, and so through that journey, I, I read a great deal of the Reformation, and that, that really created a burning flame in my heart, not only to know Christ more, but to make him known. And I think that's what set me in a trajectory, really, by the grace of God, to enter into
2: ministry. And I think it's fascinating because so often I think there's a shared experience many times with people that have been raised in a a traditional faith, and it could be anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be a high-level liturgical church. You can be a Baptist and have sort of the, this is what we do. We go to church on Sunday, we put an offering in the plate, we do this, we do that, and we, we tend to identify so much of our faith based on what we do and when the complete revelation, I think, when when the Holy Spirit really totally reveals Christ's personality and character and God's heartbeat to want to be reconciled with the creation, his creation, unto relationship, and then right. begin to realize as we're kind of going through this routine and sometimes we are laboring because we either are working to get saved or working to keep saved, mm-hmm. and suddenly when the paradigm shift really quickens and it makes the 18 inches from the head to the heart and says, wait a minute, this is not about what we do. It's about what he did. Wow. I mean, there are so many, and you use the term, uh, a burden lifted from your shoulders. And I think so often that's the shared experience that people sort of go around, even if they have a sense of, of, this is what we do, but there's still that sense of guilt, sometimes even shame there's not really that quickening of an understanding of the separation between us and the Heavenly Father and that joyous substitutionary work on the cross, as you put it, of Jesus paying the price on our behalf, taking on our penalty for our sins, both our own actions as well as the inherited Adamic sin, and then to recognize that God so loves the world and so much wants to be in relationship with his creation that he would send his son to die on a tree that through that substitutionary work we might be reconciled unto the father and enjoy the fullness of that relationship and i think it's wow not only is it is it burden lifting it is life changing and clearly changed the trajectory of your life now. I'm curious about something. I don't want to get too deep into the the weeds here, so to speak. But so often, pastor, and I know this is going to resonate when I share this with listeners, we oftentimes are criticized. We'll hear people that are outside of the faith that will say, "Well, you Christians, you know all this faith stuff. Yeah, that's okay, but you know that's like having faith in Bigfoot or in the yep. Tooth Fairy. You kind of check your brains at the door. You kind of disconnect." from a logical standpoint, a scientific standpoint, a historical standpoint, at all, as if somehow to suggest that you have to kind of um, feign ignorance in order to have any kind of a faith. And yet I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you're not only a man of degrees from a theological standpoint, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, and Pastor Manny has his uh, M.D. from Master's Seminary, But you also have two applied science degrees. And at one time, you worked at IBM's Almaden Research Center, which tells me you're no intellectual slouch. So was there ever a time in your life that you struggled with this notion of check your brains at the door to exercise your faith? Was there ever a time that you had to work to sort of find that intersection between your, your faith and your, your scientific ability to judge and to analyze and to draw conclusions?
0: It's a great question, Craig, and it's one that's very relevant for us in our day, especially. Uh, I would say yes, very simply, yes. There, there was clearly times of struggle, uh, times of questioning in my mind, doubts that I had to wrestle with. And I would say that uh, part of my story of reading that scripture the the Bible over and over, part of that thrashing of that particular material item was uh, was due to this fact that i i was i was wrestling with with the things I was doing on my academic you know route. I mentioned that I came to Christ at age seventeen I was still in high school I was entering into my senior year um but it was through the course of again providence the course of events i I found that um that physics came easy to me uh and I enjoyed it. I loved to tinker with things and I loved to deal with uh specifically with electron theory and uh one thing led to the next, and by the grace of God, I was able to uh you know to excel in in that particular field when I was a freshman in high school, i was actually i tested out of physics for high school and began to tutor the seniors and so that was just a, a again a mark where I realized uh, later in life that this is not something uh, that I have to boast in, only it's a gift that I recognize. Not everyone can understand these things, and I happen to be able to understand them fairly easily. So I was very, very grateful uh, for that. My my point now to share is that, you know, I went through college and excelled in that field and uh, was able to lead projects that went to state fairs, and there were several different job offers before I graduated To build satellites and put them into space and uh and so Almaden Research Center was where I ended up here in the Silicon Valley. It's one of eight laboratories in the world. And again, by the grace of God, I was I was delighted. I in physics, I I specialized in magnetism and electron theory. And and at the time, uh ARC Almaden Research Center was the leading um was the leading disk drive research in the world. So it was we dealt with magnetized, you know, disk drives. That's what brought me to this area. And uh and so we came here, and i just delighted in that. The, the short, and I would like to just share one other thought, is that, you know, through the years that I was there at the laboratory, um, God had been so gracious to grant me opportunities to, to go all over the world and be able to be the, uh, a chairman and a co-chairman of two different international working groups in the GGF, which is the Global Grid Forum. Uh, so I served uh, teams of people, of scholars and, and scientists uh, from all over uh, in, in trying to standardize uh, different different technologies to enable experimentation and the sharing of information. I was appointed as the team lead for the CERN project in Geneva, and um, so lots and lots of opportunity. I rubbed shoulders with lots and lots of people, and the worldview of that of that whole sector uh, is is was something that that challenged me personally to reconcile it with my faith. And uh, the short of it is, I I would have to say, I came to a place where there were lots of questions I had. How can this be true? How how can this be true when this is what science says, when this is what, you know, my teachers are saying and so forth? And really, it it might sound simplistic, but I would encourage, Greg, I would encourage all who, who think about this, who hear this voice, I would say, please consider, I came to a place where I realized, you know, we were all operating on faith. That that those that I interacted with in the scientific realm were um, very, very intelligent people, very accomplished, very capable. Their work ethic was often very stellar. Um, you, You don't get to those levels without that kind of quality. So I have a deep respect for that level of their commitment and their ability. But what I did find out was that, but yet they still operated on faith. And, and really it came to a place of what is considered presupposition. It came to a place where they were operating on one set of presuppositions. And I realized I was operating on another and it got to the point, if I might just share this briefly, you know, one time I was, I was giving a lecture in, uh, Cologne and, uh, and, and also in Brussels, Brussels, Belgium. And I, I got to tell you, the, at the University of Brussels, it was a fascinating time. I was doing this uh, lecture there, and uh, we we concluded the night. It was late into the night, and most people wanted to get home. We had a conference, and so we had to, the next morning to go. But after hours, uh, we we entered into conversation. I can't recall all the details that led us there. But what happened, in short, was we got into a debate uh, over gravity, Right. And so because I'm dealing with physicists and so we're on the board drawing out equations about the first fundamental force of the universe, this very empirical reality of nine point eight meters per second squared accelerated upon every, you know, every every aspect, every particle of matter. And um, and, and as we began to deal with that, we real you know, I began to challenge the worldview that says, wait a second, where does that where does the energy come from? to act upon that matter at an acceleration uh where does that come from because it it that force requires a source of energy and and no one could answer i had the best minds in the room and no one could answer and so then what happened was we began to debate and and i actually i actually brought them to uh, a biblical presupposition and that is that god reveals that he created And that he actually sustains that creation and upholds it by his own power. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating was that immediately there was a a distinction that was made, and a realization between the two camps. And one was neither of us could empirically prove, but both of us held to presuppositions. And so to, to just finalize this, Greg, I would say, you know, having seven years in a laboratory, having several degrees in science and and, and leading lectures all over uh, the states and and, and out of the country, um, I can tell you with great confidence that uh, a true, true science, science that is based upon empirical observation with with problem observation, hypothesis, uh, and and deduction, and reproducibility, and falsifiability as an empirical means to discover what is true about matter in motion, that kind of science, the kind of science that that creates airplanes, and cell phones, and computers, that kind of science that that is able to, that we can can predict, and, and move forward in design, and engineering, that kind of science... Will always be in perfect harmony with the truths of Scripture. So I came to realize there was no conflict and that the key distinction is this presupposition. We have to, and that's what the Bible calls faith.
2: Pastor, with all that said, as our time winds down, take a couple of moments, folks that have been eavesdropping saying, Wow, I like what Pastor Manny has had to share. I'd like to find out more about Trinity Bible Church of Morgan Hill. So take a couple of minutes and tell us what God is doing.
0: Uh, well, thank you, Craig. I, I'm I'm blessed to to serve here uh, among really a lovely church. I I have to say, um, I wrote a little booklet called uh, the you know the magnificence of the church and how the church is a precious bride of Christ, and each local church is is to be a model of that precious bride. and And I just thank God for the church among us. I, I love the church, and I'm grateful for the privilege to serve her. I'm excited what God is doing among us. Uh, you know. One of the marks that I see at God is at work in the lives of people is that they receive the word, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. And when I see that, you see people growing. They're growing in, in their humility. They're growing in their love for God and one another and compassion for the world around them. Uh, they're growing in integrity. They're growing in holiness. Uh, So I'm so excited to see uh, everything from widows to young singles to families um, growing in the Lord and, uh, and with a growing hunger, a growing hunger to not only know him more, but to make him known. And so I'm thankful for that. We've got people coming from some from great distances, in fact, just because of uh, the, the love that they experience, the, the kind of community and, and family that uh, God has blessed us with. So, so I'm very, very grateful. I would say that the, one of the key uh, centers is that we, we like to say here that the church exists to make much not of the church, but of Christ Christ. So, our, you know, one of the things I would like to just communicate is we're not I'm not out here. I'm not on the radio right now trying to just promote a local church name. Uh, we're not in this. I'm not a pastor to promote to promote my name. Uh, the reality is we exist to promote Christ for God's glory and man's joy. And uh, that is something that the people have have really adopted and have and are growing in. And it is a wonderful thing to see. We also see uh, lots of new people coming to Christ. You know, after this whole craziness with COVID, uh, there was a lot of a lot of people left the state. We lost 24 families uh, who, who moved out of state because of various reasons, business, politics, all kinds of things. But, but God has been, you know, gracious to us as a local body, bringing new people coming in, many of whom are new in Christ now, just since COVID have had questions, some from, uh, you know, a lot of them from the medical profession, some from, uh, you know, law enforcement, some from, you know, technology. I mean, we have a lot of high tech people among us and, and some, you know, with a scientific mind. I have a couple of guys who are in science and, and I got to tell you, you know, they have questions and they come. Some of these people are coming to Christ. So we see people, We see salvation happening among us. We see people growing. There's a love for the Lord. Uh, There's just a lot of excitement. uh, And I'm just so grateful for the privilege to share that. God is doing amazing things. And uh, it's wonderful to just... See him work and be a part of his, uh, of his work so
2: and what a joy to, to hear you share about not only that relational growth, that spiritual growth, that that iron sharpening iron growth, uh, which is so exciting and certainly, if you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area or are looking for a new church home, we invite you to uh, any Sunday morning drop by and visit Trinity Bible Church. they're located at 16100 Caputo Drive in Morgan Hill, and you can get complete details online by simply going to Trinity. ORG. That's trinitybiblechurch.org. Service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and then midweek Bible study at 7 p.m. And you can call the church for more information if you so desire at area code 408-762-5800. That's 408-762-5800. Or once again, online at trinitybiblechurch.org where I think not only will you find a very warm welcome, but also you won't be required to check your intellect at the door. So we invite you to come and check them out. Pastor Manny Pereira, we sure appreciate your heart, your passion, your sharing of your experience, and sharing what God is doing at Trinity Bible Church. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: It was a true blessing and an honor. Thank you.
2: Love is the
0: chief voice of the gospel, and it is the distinguishing mark of the truth. For you were created to glorify God and enjoy him. But you cannot unless God himself would love you in such a way to transform you and your relationship to him. This is the gospel, beloved and friends. The good news that the world so desperately needs. My prayer is that the time that remains in my effort to simply woo your heart to see the wonders of this love this is the kind of love that we are talking about that Paul is describing. It's a love that calls for our joy, a love that beckons that we would rejoice in an invincible love of God, this love that, that safeguards against every possibility of separation from the God of love. I don't think Paul is simply saying, oh, well, this is, this is my conviction. I don't know about you, but this is my conviction. Are you with me? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, this is where I stand. I don't know where you stand. Or you can take it or leave it. What he's saying is very plain. He's saying, with the authority of an apostle, through inspiration of written scripture, he's saying, no, this this is true. So the certainty has a purpose to grab you. Not just to look at what one guy thinks, but to authoritatively declare. And what is he declaring? Well, he goes on to really present 10 categories, 10 categories of potentials, potentials that can threaten you, potentials that can shake you, potentials that that might um, affect you in a way that, that rob you of the intimate knowledge of God's love. They're presented in four pairs and two catch-alls. The four pairs are very clearly opposites. They they present one extreme as opposed to the other extreme. And that is a typical device in writing rhetoric rhetoric, where it's describing everything from one total extreme to the other and everything between. And it's as if he's going to do these four pairs to show all four possible dimensions. And he's going to describe that there's nothing, absolutely nothing in, through, around, behind, before, over, above. And beho- and after, nothing can possibly separate you. You are safe in Christ. In this invincible love of God. And just think with me on these pairs. We've got death and life. And what is that but all possible, the only two possible states of existence. You have angels and rulers, and this speaks of the spirit world we'll look at. We have things present, things to come. This speaks of all temporal measure and all events. It it speaks of height and depth. This is extremes, utter extremes and finalities. And lastly, the two two catch-all phrases. He says, Powers, all powers. And then he says, and anything else in all creation. So he's got four pairs and two catch alls, and what he's presenting is a very obviously clear, and that is nothing. He could have just said nothing, but he wants, he wants, to, he wants to steamroll. He wants to go over and over. He wants to draw your heart, not just your head. He wants you not just to know the fact of it. He wants you to have the feeling of it. He wants you to be so impacted. He wants your heart to be induced to say, this is amazing. It is marvelous. This needs more than explanation. It needs reflection. It needs my heart's meditation. Bishop Moule says this, uh, well, nothing in all the boundless field of circumstances and contingencies. Paul wants to speak of nothing in all the boundless circumstances, field of circumstances and contingencies. He speaks of physical dangers and hierarchies and supernatural powers. He looks through them all and through all time and through all space and through all realms and through all powers and through all possibilities. As one said, he ransacked the universe to find anything that could challenge this love of God. And he came back empty handed and declared it to God's people. This is the picture. What he's presenting here is something that he says, look, even as I factor more and more increasingly dangerous, as I factor increasing dangers, I only return with increasing feelings of confidence. The more I know what could oppose and know that it cannot, the more confident I become. The more I know, the more strengthened I become. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says it well. My my brethren, the love of God brought in by faith will help a man to bear up under any condition. This love of God will increase in you confidence that you are safe in Christ and in him alone. Well, let's walk through it. Instead of giving you points, I could give you the points of each one of these or give you the points of the four pairs. You'll just see it as we go. Let's just walk through each one of these pairs. First of all, we have neither death nor life, neither death nor life. You know, what's interesting is he starts with death. He just quoted the Psalms that speak of death and he's pointing out that that cannot separate. And so he begins in this idea of the potential that that obviously he's speaking to people living right now. And he says, but if you die, the death will not separate. Yet, isn't it striking that Paul would write things like, I die daily. Or that for me to die is gain. Clearly he understands, he has a view of this Christ, he has a view of this invincible love. Like the psalmist would say, crying out because of your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Thomas Brooks, another Puritan says, Thus do suffering Christians and martyrs give persecutors to understand that they serve a good master. And that they highly prize him who hath done more and suffered more for them than their dearest blood is worth. You see, Christ is is better than life. All my sufferings and even my death don't compare to his. And it's through those that he loves me. So there is no comparison Brooks goes on and says, And this Christ enables who enables them with courage, constancy, and comfort to endure whatsoever for his namesake can be inflicted on them and therein to be more the conquerors, yea, even above conquerors. And let's just make this clear. Death cannot separate you from the love of God. Which means that even in the death, he loves you. Even in the death, he loves you. Have you thought about your death? Have you thought about like one, one nanosecond before you die? You have a cognitive awareness of your presence in this realm. And one nanosecond after you die, you will have a cognitive awareness of your presence in another realm. There will be no break. There will be no darkness. There will be no true separation of any kind. You will pass from this life, which Paul says elsewhere, and it's a strange reality that we have to take serious, that when we live in this body, we are actually Separate from the Lord. Do you remember that? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. We will move from this realm, separate from the manifest, glorious presence of Christ, and literally in less than a blink of an eye, cognitive awareness of His love and His presence. Seamless for me to live as Christ. To die is gain. Death will not separate you from this love. How about life? He says neither death nor life. And some might say. That, well that's, that's strange. Why would anyone think that life would separate you from Christ? Isn't he the giver of life? Isn't life the good thing? I mean we're talking extremes and, and contrast. But I understand that. But, but at the same time. I can understand how death could scare me. To think that I might be separated from Christ. But but life. Oh. Oh, dear one, I would say this very carefully. Life is filled with trials and distresses, is it not? Isn't that what he's already rehearsed in chapter 8? That there are many things that will come knocking upon your heart that will make you faint, that will present you shaken, that will challenge your, your, your belief to the core. This happens in life. All of these things happen in life. And dare I say, not only is there, are there enticements and distractions, and it's not just the bad things in life, but the good things. You know, one of the dangers of life itself is, is, is seduction. You can be seduced away from this Christ. And, and here you are in Silicon Valley, the Disneyland of the world. Entertainment is everywhere. Technology displaces the need for God. Medicine displaces the need for God. And so in this life, in this place, there's a danger to be separated from Christ. For it's a, it's a constant enticement to you, a, 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 a distraction to your heart. Do you remember what our Lord said in Mark chapter 4? He said that some of the seed fail on thorny ground. And he said that the the thorns, the thorn bush represented the world that, that raised up and choked out the cares of this world and even, dare I say, the prosperities of this world. Do you remember how the Lord himself told through Moses, told Israel, when you come into the land of promise that I will give you, when I give you abundance, the the land flowing with milk and honey, and, and when you prosper, and when your trees and your vineyards produce, and when your wine vats are full, you will forget your God. Do you remember that? Prosperity is yet another thing that happens in life. And isn't it true that all of these things, even this life and its best things, can they can distract us from the reality that this realm is cursed, that life is a vapor, and that we are all accountable. And so this is to remind the thoughtful Christian that, yes, nothing even in this life, there is no distraction that will Conquer this love. This love will not let you become mesmerized and hypnotized to the point of failure, final failure. It will always bring you back. This love safeguards you. It produces martyrs, I say. And you know what's the most commendable thing about the martyr? It's not the death. For I see martyrs of all kinds of religions. The most commendable thing about a martyr for Christ is this, not his death, but his life. That when he can choose to recant, he chooses Christ instead. So that in this life, nothing could separate him from this Christ, from this love. That's what we have. And one more. If you could just take a note of it, Romans 14, seven, you can turn there if you like, just a couple pages over. Paul writes this for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Verse eight, for if we live, here's again, can life separate us from Christ? If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, notice this, Lord, both of the dead and of the living. It's the point, nothing, neither life nor death can separate you. Let's go back, neither death nor life. Let's go back to Romans 8, and continue in verse 38. He says now, nor angels, nor rulers. And this makes a pair, a couple, and what they present to us, on the one hand, are angelic beings, and on the other hand, also spirit beings, angelic beings, but uh, it, it's most reasonable to take them as, as rulers of darkness. Now, first start with The angels. And ask yourself yet again, just like we asked about life, how is it that angels could separate us from the love of God? After all, angels don't sin those who are not already being judged. Uh, well, what is this then? What is this good angel that could come between me and the love of God? Don't be naive. Paul writes to the Galatians with flaming intensity and says that even if I or an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches another gospel, That would be your damnation. So that even if an angel were to misspeak. That that would be your damnation. That would separate you. And here Paul says no. Those who are secured by an invincible love of God. A prevailing love of God. they, They are not subject to such defection and apostasy. I also believe that good angels, for instance, uh, in the example of Revelation, or we also find in in the description that Paul gives in Colossians. Let me read it. Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. And in Revelation, John falls down and begins to worship an angel because he's so glorious. And he says, no, you must not do that. Even a good angel could come between us. Defect us. Creating us some kind of idolatry. Something like that. This is a potential. It is a potential. And Paul says no. Those who are loved by God. Through Christ Jesus. Poured out by the spirit. Held in his hands. Held close to his heart. Not even this potential could separate you. Not to mention demonic powers. Let's look at rulers. What are rulers? Arch heads. These are principalities, as it's translated in the King James. And whenever this is coupled with angels, it, it, it always is in the realm of heavenly authorities. Heavenly rulers. Some have said, well, you know, that, that word can be used for earthly rulers. Oh, it can. That's not to be doubted. And certainly it includes the idea of any ruler on heaven or on earth. But the point is, just like the ruler of Babylon or the ruler of Tyre, who's behind the rulers that could do you harm? Do you remember? Ezekiel writes about the ruler of, of Babylon and, and Isaiah writes about the ruler of Tyre. And, and who does he speak about? He speaks of Satan. So that even the most, the most threatening rulers on this planet, the potentials behind them, the powers that are behind them are these archaic, these, these, these spiritual principalities. Let me give you some examples 1 Corinthians 15, 24. At the end, he says that God will deliver uh, the kingdom of God, or Christ will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule. There it is, every rule. Same word. And every authority and every power. These are spiritual realities. Ephesians 1:21 says, far above all rule, This is Christ seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This Christ is given to his bride with a total and complete security. And he's given as presently over all things. Possible potential spiritual powers. Child of God, you have not to fear the powers of darkness. They can hurt you, afflict you, but they can never separate you from the love of God. Ever. Even Satan, as a roaring lion, seeking to devour. Those who have been gripped by this love of God can never be devoured. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There's something here where we don't even see what's going on. Where God is excited for Christ and him crucified to bless the church and for you, you and me. This isn't this isn't other people. This is people in Christ. For you, God is delighted to use you to show the powers in heavenly realms, dark powers to show them you're defeated. They're mine. And you will never take them away. And you can't, you can't but help to think you have to, your mind, if you know the Bible, stumble right into one book, a famous book, the oldest book written in the entire scripture, the book of Job. And it is truly the taste, the test case. And doesn't it ultimately come down to really this, the test of his heart? Doesn't it come down to really a contest of a principality, a archaic, a ruler of spiritual darkness? Testing the heart of a man. And God himself says, and why else would God say, have you considered my servant Job? Why would God initiate it? I'll tell you why. Because he's proving not Job. He's proving his invincible love. That's what he's proving. He's showing Satan the RK, the ruler of darkness. He's showing him, no, no, no. When I have an invincible love, gripping a man, no matter what you take from him, you take everything from him. He will not, not fall away from me. I hold him. And even if he sins in the process, and even if he becomes arrogant in the process, and even if he tries to justify himself in the process, and even if all of his counselors are wrong in the process, at the very end, he puts his hand over his mouth and he declares, woe is me. I have heard of you from the hearing of the mouth, but now I see. What do I see? I see that it's not me. You hold me. You keep me. You love me. That's the point. God taught a lesson to Satan on that day, and he wants every one of us to know. And right now, he's delighted to show the rulers of darkness the church. This is dangerous, you know, what I'm saying. You take it wrong, it's very dangerous. But I have come to learn that if you are truly in Christ this will not inspire any sense of license in you to sin. This will only create in you an induced sense of greater affection and greater interest to be faithful to your Lord and Savior. Well, I could go on, there are many other examples of these rulers and authorities in heavenly places, the darkness that they present, but I agree with Cranfield, he ends on punctuates this pair by saying what Paul is here concerned to say is simply that there is no spiritual cosmic power, whether benevolent or malevolent, which will be able to separate us from God, from God's love in Christ. Now he moves on to things present and things to come. Notice that. Nor things present, nor things to come. And what is he talking about? He is here moving into another dimension. He wants to now explore. He wants to ransack this. And that is the dimension of time. And then he'll move into the dimension of space. In all of the time-space continuum, there is nothing at the extremity or anywhere between that could possibly separate you. Nothing. He says, very plain things present. What are those? How about suffering in this present age? Not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. How about about suffering now? How about the pains that we experience now? How about false teaching now? How about all the allurements and distractions now? In this present time, in this present moment, what you're carrying, what you're bearing. I think he's touching the idea of the present affliction and, and future uncertainty. Pain hurts and we become afraid, especially when we don't know. So he moves from the present to the, to the things to come. He wants us to see that beyond what you can know, It cannot take you and separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing in all the possible ages to come. Nothing. Nothing in future time. It reminds me of David, right? In that wonderful psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he goes on to describe, even through the valley of the shadow of death, he is leading me, he is guiding me, he carries me. But then at the end, how does he punctuate it? Oh, and I know this, that mercy and goodness and your loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Nothing to come endangers me. Nothing can separate me from you. He is speaking of natural and supernatural events in time. This is the dimension of all time. And he says, nothing the events, even those things that accompany the end of the age, you know how Christ talks and many people become overwhelmed and caught up on end times and, and, and the issues that will happen and take this to heart. Nothing that will happen at the end of the age nothing has the potential to separate you from the love of God and Christ. Nothing. There's there's the kind of security that we need to have. And he moves on finally to this last dimension of height and depth and some want to talk about astrology. And I don't have time. I could talk to you about how the Greeks and the Romans thought that there was a fatalistic determination of your future based upon the stars and how they aligned. Literally, all the, the major emperors of Rome, Augustine and so forth, they, how did they do this? How did they become emperors? They waited until a certain star aligned and then they went out for battle. They literally thought that they did it on this day that the stars determined the fate. And so some have looked at this and said, well, this is the kind of language that the Greeks and Romans used to describe how heights and depths represented the the extremities of the movement of the celestial bodies, and those would represent times of fate. Could be, could be a double intender, which means he's trying to reach those who might be captive to that kind of mythology. But I think it's more clear to see directly from the New Testament itself Uh, Namely, out of Ephesians 3, how Paul says, I pray, he says, I pray this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may being rooted and grounded in love, in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. I think that's what he means. There's no Possible measurement. It is like being over the Mariana Trench. And you're on the surface. And you look down. And you can see the depth. But you can't see the bottom. And even in the places of extreme unknown. Nothing can separate you. There's no potential anywhere lurking or hiding. That could somehow, somewhere or sometime. Come out and separate you. From the love of God in Christ. Well. Nor powers. Nor anything in all creation. For the sake of time. Let me just summarize these two. Powers is often translated miracles. It could encompass everything from magic. To hostility of spiritual intelligence. And the point is just that. It is a catch all. All potential power. And finally, in all creation, anything, in all creation. And the point is clear. No matter what in the realm of creation could possibly take you away, I want to address one simple thought very quickly. But what about yourself? Let me say it this way. How about the power of your will? Because some would actually argue this and say things like, well, yeah, I I get that nothing, in fact, the greatest powers in in all existence, nothing could separate me from the love of God except my will. And I say, time out. Wasn't the whole chapter about you suffering? Wait, let's rephrase that. Wasn't the whole chapter about things that could cause you to fall away? And isn't he now saying nothing? Doesn't that include? Doesn't all things include you? Oh, it's a dangerous thing, but I want you to know it. It includes you. It includes It included Job. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, not all that believe in me, not all that say yes to me, but all that the Father gives me, not one will be lost. In fact, he goes on then later to say, and no one, nothing, no power can take them out of my hand. I hold them. And then he does this wonderful thing just like Paul does here. He says the love of Christ and then he says the love of God in Christ and the same thing. Jesus says no one can take them out of my hand. That's my love and no one can take them out of my father's hand and that's the love of the father in Christ. You are utterly and completely secured in Christ. Beloved and friends, let's think now on what he says. He says will be able, that speaks of a power, able to separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just have one quick analogy and a story to tell you and we'll pray. Listen, the analogy would be this love of God, it cannot be forced. It cannot be, it cannot be, pr- it cannot be uh, pressed into any more than you can come and open a rose by forcing the petals They won't open. They will break. No, what opens the rose? What opens your heart? The warmth, the love of the sun. And the rose opens. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. The fragrance of our life will come from a knowledge of his love. Not a knowledge of our duty. But the knowledge of his love. And yes, we ought to. We ought to check our lives. And make certain. That, that Make our calling and election sure. This isn't a license to disobedience. And disrespect and disregard. To the holiness of God. But rather this is a stimuli. How do you open the rose. And make it fragrant. You don't force it and command it. The, the warmth of Of God's love does that in your heart. I love the story that Charles Spurgeon told. It was a story like Job in the sense of asking about powers at at work in a heart of a man. And he said, uh, the sun spoke to the wind one day. And said, you know, I have a greater power than you do. You think you're strong and you think you could take off the, the coat of that one child and i dare say i can do it better than you and the wind said no 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 and so the wind mustered up all its strength and began to blow hard on the child and what did the child do he clenched tighter to his coat and he held it all the stronger against that's a picture of the hardening of the heart but then the sun said now step aside and he opened his rays And the warmth of this love of the sun worked on the inside and the child stood up and took the coat off effortlessly. This is the love of God. What you need to know is it is a certainty, an invincibility. Nothing can separate you and that will warm you to love him more. So the, the, the little poem that I came across, which is quite beautiful, says this, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. Let us respond to this great crescendo of the invincible love of God. You know, there was an aged man who was dying. And uh, his pastor came up again, a young man, and he came up and he said, "Oh, can I, can I please read to you uh, about about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? This this you need in this in this dire hour of your last moments." And the old man, he. He sat up and looked at this young pastor and said, listen, young man, I have something far greater to tell you. And the pastor looks strangely uh, shaken and he said, well, I'm sorry, what is it? And he said, not that I love God, but that God loves me. That's what brings me peace. That's what I need. In this dire hour. Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon. The, 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 the student. The pupil of Martin Luther. In his dying moments. He cried out. Please go get Romans 8. And read it to me. And when these verses were read. He exclaimed with his finger. Pointing to the sky. And he said. That's it. That's it. That's it. And he gave up his breath. He died knowing He's not separated because of an invincible love.
2: Pastor Manny Pereira, Senior Pastor of Trinity Bible Church of Morgan Hill.
1: This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website, to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor in church, along with a link to the website and email to church of the week at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.